Welcome to a brand new episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by a chef uh, for the first time in like six or seven episodes. I think the last time we had a chef on was like the beginning of November. This week's guest is Chef Zach Walters, who's also the co-owner of Sedalia's Oyster and Seafood, which is a restaurant in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Him and his wife, Savannah, co-own the restaurant together. And it's a pretty interesting origin story. Uh, Zach's family, he's originally from Oklahoma City, and his family has a like industrial playground manufacturing business. And they had this storage shed outpost building thing on the property, and they turned that into a restaurant, which is Sedalia's. And it's all seafood. Uh, the only time they ever really have any meat on the menu is like beef heart uh, that Zach gets. And he goes into all this stuff too, as well on, on the episode. It's in the middle of the country. Like you look at a map of the United States and Oklahoma City is pretty much smack dab right in the middle, equidistant from East Coast to West Coast and North to South from Canada to Mexico. Like it is the middle heartland of America and him and his wife are doing seafood focused cuisine in a place that you wouldn't expect to find it. And we had Matthew Meeker on a handful of episodes ago uh, this year, and he kind of touched on Sedalia's and Nunsuch. He did a guest chef dinner at Nunsuch, which is another restaurant in Oklahoma City, fine dining-esque. There's a handful. Gray Sweater's another one, and there's a few others that have gotten some national recognition, just as Sedalia's has. They were on uh, the Bon Appetit list, but uh, all of them kind of Bon Appetit, Esquire, James Beard Foundation. There's like this handful kind of six, seven group that's kind of paving the way in Oklahoma City for things outside of your steakhouses and your chains to thrive in. And I wanted to have Zach on just because it's an awesome concept. I'm always down to talk seafood and usually sushi if I get the chance with anyone and grew up on the East Coast. So I love seafood. Um, there are bits and pieces of seafood that I don't, I'm not a fan of, just different varieties of certain things. Shrimp being the big one, um, you know, I'll eat it here or there if I kind of have to, if it's incorporated in like a tasting menu or something like that, but I don't eat shrimp. I don't seek it out. That and prawns is just not something I'm into. I've had all sorts of different sourced and quality ones. It's just not something for me, but a lot of people love it. And there's some stuff that I like that other people don't like. Uh, oysters is one of those things. And there's a handful of others, mussels too. So seafood is, is pretty wide in what you can get. And we go into kind of the ethos of the restaurant, kind of how they approach things too, as well as, as well as Zach's career. So it's a pretty cool episode. It's a different format. We tweaked it a little bit. Just It just kind of worked out this way. Zach kind of goes through his entire career, and then I kind of come through with specific questions at different points in his career after that. And then we talk Sedalia's uh, for the rest of the time. So it's a little bit different of a format, kind of still uh, within what we normally do, but just kind of tweaked a little bit, and that's just how it naturally worked out. But Zach's awesome. He sounds, if you've ever heard of uh, Kevin Smith, the director, uh, an actor from like Clerks and stuff like that. Zach's voice is like a spitting image of Kevin Smith's. If you ever heard him on a podcast, uh, they sound almost identical. So uh, it was pretty wild at first uh, when we were going. And I was, <laughs> he sounds exactly like Kevin Smith. And Kevin Smith's awesome. He's one of the best podcast guests out there. Uh, different comedy podcasts too as well. So Zach was an awesome guest as well. But you could follow him on Instagram. Uh, his personal handle is ZLW7. But the restaurant's handle is Sedalia's OKC, and that's spelled S-E-D-A-L-I-A-S, 
OKC. Uh, no underscores, no periods, gaps, anything like that. All just one word on Instagram. Check out their website too as well. If you type in Sedalia's, Sedalia's Oklahoma City or Sedalia's Seafood and Oyster or Oyster and Seafood if you flipped around, whatever. It'll come up in Google. It'll take you right to their website. They're also on top where they do the reservations and everything, but you can get the menu details, reservations, some background on the restaurant too. They have a bunch of photos and stuff too up on the website there. Uh, any events or something that they do, um, they'll post too as well. But you can follow us on Instagram too as well. We're at Spoon Mob, all one word. Uh, you can find us on any podcast platform. Make sure to follow, subscribe, so you get all the new episodes downloaded straight into your feed. Especially with the holidays and everything, you know, people catching up on backed episodes or episodes they didn't finish and what have you. So people kind of have uh, this two-week period of time where things are kind of slow and whatnot. So travel and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can check out the website too as well. It's just foodmob.com, contact information, food photos, wine photos, guest information, running list, master list of all the episodes that we've had. We're at 150 now, which is a goal that I wanted to get to this year. I wanted to reach 150. We wanted to get to 100 at the end of last year and we were a little short. So we actually did more than 50 episodes this year to catch back up. So which is pretty awesome to finally get to this mark. It's been three years, basically been averaging 50 episodes a year. There's 52 weeks in a year. So pretty much we only take like two weeks off a year in doing the podcast when it averages out. So we're going to be taking some time off here uh, after the next couple episodes come out. Uh, you know, we'll do some recording in the meantime, kind of bank a few episodes and, and start releasing some stuff to kind of end of January. Early February is the target. Got some other stuff to catch up on too as well. But without any further delays, any further updates, here's my conversation with Chef Zach Walters, the co-owner of Sedalia's Oyster and Seafood in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Cool. Well, thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast. Take some time out of your day to jump on and talk about uh, your career and everything. You guys are based in Oklahoma City, as I've alluded to on you know previous episodes that we've had people in or around that city, that market. It's a unique city in the sense that you wouldn't think there's much there. And this is relatively small downtown. You have the Bricktown area, you know, obviously you have the Thunder and everything, uh, the museum too as well. But there are some really unique restaurants popping up in that area. And you're one of them, uh, what you and your wife are doing. And I want to get into all that, kind of how that all materialized for you. But I always like to kind of start at the beginning with people because I think kind of the background of somebody's career, how they wound up where they're at now when they come on. I think that's all important to tell the story of kind of what they're doing and why they're doing currently. So for you, when did you first get interested in cooking? Because you're originally from Oklahoma. You wind up out west for a while, but how did that kind of start for you? Was it just job in high school? Was there family involved in restaurants? No family involved in restaurants at all. My, my family's in education and then also in construction. For me, you know, growing up, you know, I had a grandmother that loved to cook and that I was always fascinated to help. I can't say that was the inspiration that got me to actually get into restaurants. But during high school, I worked at uh, a local Italian restaurant here, bus tables, you know, did that whole thing. And then sometime around college, I was going to the University of Oklahoma. I thought I was going to go to law school. Uh, that was a short-lived dream for sure. But while I was down there, my let me know that there was a new sushi bar that just opened up in Norman, Oklahoma, and that the guy needed help. And I had never cooked really in my life, especially not professionally. It was like, yeah, let me go give it a try. And I went in and the, uh, the name of the restaurant was uh, Gaijin Sushi, which is kind of a, 
racial slur in, in Japan, but he had spent enough time in Japan learning how to make sushi that he thought it was pretty funny to come home and open up kind of like a white guy sushi place. He was also doing some interesting like Japanese style bistro food too. You know, he was actually making, you know, true demi gloss and he was actually making bechamel sauce and he was actually, you know, making Berblancs and all these crazy sauces to go with his, uh, with his appetizer. So inside of a week of me working there, he'd already kind of trained me on how to do all those things without me really understanding what I was doing. I just kind of at that point was still just thinking this is a job and I just need to be trained how to do something and I'm just being shown how to do it. Kind of over the course of that you know, first six month period, I just really fell in love with the competitiveness between some of the other people that work there uh, with the chef himself and just the feeling of it. I, I had played baseball my entire life and I was very competitive. At, I kind of took that background of like training because I did a lot of training for baseball on my own. And, and I just kind of took that mentality into the kitchen. So I kind of went home every night and started working on knife skills. I went home every night and started just, you know, going to the grocery store and randomly cooking things uh, and just got really hungry and eventually stopped going to school altogether. I had a friend that lived in San Francisco and he was about to turn 21 and he was like, come out for my birthday. And I went out there and fell in love with the city. That was kind of it for me getting out of Oklahoma. You know, I had spent some time in New York as an as as an eighteen year old and enjoyed the energy of that. And I kind of always knew I wanted to leave Oklahoma City to get somewhere that just had more kinetic energy in it. Just uh, you know, the, Oklahoma City in the the late eighties and the, and throughout the nineties was definitely not what it is now uh, by any means. My personality just needed just needed a lot more energy involved in something. I, I just really enjoy that urban lifestyle. So when I went to San Francisco and I kind of had a friend unit there, it just made a little bit more sense. And uh, I, I went over to the uh, culinary school there off of Polk Street at the time. It was the California Culinary Academy. I think this was about 2002 when I went out there. Just interviewed with them and you know showed them that I had been working in kitchens and I had a couple of years of experience and all this and so on and so forth. And signed up and kind of went home, told him I was going to completely drop out of college and I was going to move to San Francisco. And that was it. So of course, to the shock of my family for leaving, I'm like the only person that's left Oklahoma uh, in the family. Everybody else is still here and we've been here for a very long time. I'm about, I'm, I think I'm third full generation Oklahoman. You know, that, that was kind of rough on the family for a minute, but at the same time, you know, I was young and ambitious and they wanted, and they, they knew they weren't going to hold me back. So wound up in San Francisco about uh, three months before culinary school started officially. And that would have been just at the very beginning of 2003, looking for a job. And again, I'm uh, extremely naive when it comes to restaurants. I born and raised in Oklahoma, a good night out for us was going to the Olive Garden. The only thing I knew how I, that I could do was use a knife. I knew how I could chop vegetables. I knew I could cook things. I knew I could break down fish. I could break down a salmon at that point in about in less than three minutes. You know, I, I was very confident and very cocky with the skills that I had, but I hadn't the slightest idea what a food city was. I hadn't the slightest idea what a Michelin star was. There was absolutely nothing that I knew about the restaurant world and walked into San Francisco with a shitty little resume that had some Oklahoma restaurants on it. 
walking into all these professional kitchens, being completely shut down by people and laughed at almost by chefs and CDCs and sous chefs and things like that, basically saying, no, get in line, go to culinary school first, then you can come back, that sort of thing. And, you know, after about a week of really pounding the pavement, trying to find a job because I needed a job because I, I had zero money. It was like, I kind of sold my drum set here in Oklahoma City. And that was the money that I moved to San Francisco. And I bought myself a futon, moved into the room that I was living with, with the two people that I moved in with. And so I, you know, I had to have a job. So at this point, I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, do I need to go find like a, a job at a sushi bar? Well, that wasn't going to happen. No sushi restaurant was going to hire a white guy from Oklahoma to work at a sushi bar in San Francisco. I'm on the bus in the financial district and I drive past a restaurant named Rubicon. I have no idea what Rubicon is. I have no idea what it signifies. I have no idea the history behind it, the person that owned it, all the people involved in it. But it was a restaurant and I hadn't gone inside there yet. And I walked inside and I said, I, you know, I'm looking for a cook job. They pointed me downstairs. And the chef at the time was a man named Dennis Leary. And uh, he took my paper, my resume, and he threw it in the trash. Then he uh, said, if you want to come back on next Thursday, then you can do a stage. And of course, I didn't have the slightest idea what the hell that was. But to me, I was thinking, okay, well, yeah, what's a stage? And he's like, it's kind of a working interview. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, then I'll, I'll come back. I did that on that Thursday. I trained with the Garmanger station, or at least I set up the Garmanger station. I've never been in a high-profile kitchen, especially one that was, you know, squeaky clean and you couldn't speak. You had to ask the chef to speak before you could speak to ask questions. Everybody was extremely grumpy. Everybody was extremely upset. I mean, even the, you know, the dishwashers weren't polite. Like, nobody was polite. But I just kind of stuck my head down, did what I was trying to do. They were showing me how to do things. I did it, so on and so forth. We got to service. You know, they showed me how to plate some dishes. I plated those dishes and uh, just kind of working through the night. And the guy that I was working with at the Garmarger station, the chef called him downstairs to, you know, to, to, ha to have a talk with him. And five minutes later, the guy kind of comes up to me in the kitchen and he says, Hey man, good luck. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, like, Oh, you're leaving for the night. Take, take care. At that point, every, you know, the sous chefs and everybody said, well, it's time to break down the kitchen. So we start breaking the kitchen down and doing that whole thing and fourth the floors and scrub down all the grills. And, you know, an hour later we're downstairs and the chef comes over to me and says, well, we've got a job opening now. So if you want the job, it'll be, you know, $10 an hour, six days a week. And you need to have your station set up by four o'clock. If you can't get it set up by four, obviously you're fired. And of course, I'm like, well, what time am I supposed to be? And, you know, he's like, you can come in whatever time you want just to get, make sure your station's open at four. And that was kind of it. And I was like, okay, but I had no idea that he just fired the guy that was showing me everything on the stations. But I mean, you know, Dennis was intense. Uh, he was a very, he was not like overly unreasonably of a kind of a short guy, but he was extremely intelligent, extremely fit and small, but scary as hell. And for like a 21-year-old me, I was just scared out of my mind of this person. Uh, he used to have us in his office doing pull-ups and shit like that just to like mess with people. He'd have me bring interns in from culinary school so that they could pick frozen meat out of the freezer for until like one, two o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was sinister little gig, but it was Rubicon in San Francisco in, in the early 2000s. I mean, it kind of had its heyday in the mid-90s and everything, but it was still a very, very, very important restaurant. And I just kind of stumbled upon it, and I got very lucky to be in there. And like I said, I just kind of kept my same mentality of like, keep your head down, 
Don't worry about getting yelled at. It doesn't matter. Just keep on doing you. All those types of things that I kind of did when I played sports, I just kind of kept that same mentality. And sometime about six months into the Rubicon stint, he was let go. And then they hired Stuart Brioza, who now has like State Bird Provisions and all those great places in San Francisco. And so I got to spend about another eight months working uh, for another chef, which almost kind of like made it look like I was basically working for an entire new restaurant. And that was really awesome. We got to change the menu. The Stewart's attitude is the exact opposite of what Dennis's was. So much more just, hey, let's like, we can turn music on a little bit. Like we can relax guys, like everybody have fun. It started turning into a very, very fun kitchen and a fun atmosphere. When I had moved to San Francisco, I kind of had a time frame. I moved out to California with a girlfriend at the time, and she had moved to LA, which, which is where she was originally from. And I had moved to San Francisco to go to school. So when I was done with school, the idea was for me to go down to LA to uh, continue that relationship. So that's kind of how I, I mean, I was moving up in the kitchen and I was really having my footing. And I think that if I had a better head on my shoulders, like if I was really, if I really thought about like career building the way that a lot of young chefs think about career building, like, okay, I've got to spend two years here with this person. Then I'm going to jump around and I'm going to start working at all these great restaurants to build my uh, resume and to, and to just kind of learn my craft. I probably would have stayed in San Francisco and just canceled that personal relationship. Uh, but I'm an idiot. And so I didn't do that. Uh, and I wound up down in LA and I'm a person that's quick, especially when I was young, I'm very quick to get very, very cocky. So because I kind of at that point had spent a year and a half in a really high profile kitchen, I was kind of like, I'm done with that food. I already know how to do that. There's no reason to continue that kind of thing. So at that point I was thinking, okay, I'm going to move down to LA and we'll figure something else out. We'll go another direction. I wound up somehow at Journey. Troy Thompson was the chef at that place. And I did my internship down there for three months. What was, what is the, the Ritz Carlton? And it was absolute hell on earth. I don't recommend hotels to anybody. Uh, if you want to do them, that's for you. I would never recommend it. If that's your cup of tea, then go for it. But for me, absolutely hated my time inside of the Ritz-Carlton. I don't think the chefs liked me very much either. I felt like I, I was kind of combative, I guess, in certain ways. I don't know why, but there were just issues. And so it was a very bad internship for me, but I still got my grades. I still was able to pass. I was still able to get the uh, associate's degree from uh, culinary school. But after that, I was kind of like a wanderer. I, I spent three months there. I didn't take the job they offered me when the internship was over. Uh, and I just kind of wandered around. I kind of somehow found this weird gig at a place called Blowfish Sushi that was a freaking like Paris Hilton hangout in Beverly Hills at the time. It was the epitome of what Los Angeles was in the early 2000s of just this really, really, really crappy, clubby food in this dining scene that was just overly expensive with very poor ingredients and very bad uh, decor. It, just, it was just bad in all of its ways that it could be. And I, uh, you know, there was more, there was probably more cocaine being used than there was food being used in that restaurant. I somehow ended up with a kitchen managing job three weeks after into it because the guy that was the kitchen manager got a DUI on his bike riding down the Sunset Strip. And he had a bench warrant out for his arrest in San Jose because he had a DUI he didn't show up to court for on that thing also. So then they're like, well, you seem to be competent. You take this job. And 
I stuck with that for a good, uh, I don't know, nine months. And I remember I, I'm, I'm home for Christmas. I'm at my brother's house. I'm absolutely just like, I've got to get out of this place. I don't know what I'm doing. This is really terrible. And I'm online and I had always heard, you know, people in San Francisco were like, oh, you're going to be in LA. Oh, I'm from there. You should really try to work with, uh, you know, Suzanne Goen or like Nancy Silverton. They're both fantastic. Like you, you should really try to work at those restaurants. Being an, an idiot, I didn't really take a lot of advice. I kind of shunned that off, but I'm at my brother's apartment at the time in Oklahoma City and I'm on Craigslist for Los Angeles and I see an opening for a brand new restaurant that had just opened called The Hungry Cat which happened to be a Suzanne Goen restaurant with her husband, David Lentz, and they were looking for a line cook. Uh, I sent an email over through Craigslist real fast and you know, said, hey, I'll be back in town in like four days. And they said, when you're in town, come on over. I went over there, I gave him a, a resume and David kind of looks at me and he says, oh, you worked at uh, Rubicon. And I said, yeah. And he goes, did you work for Dennis? And I said, yeah, 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 I worked for Dennis. And he goes, yeah, he's a real fucking asshole, isn't he? And I was like, yeah, he's, he's, he was a fucking asshole for sure. And, but then, you know, but Dave's like, but they, you know, he's like, but that asshole could cook. And I was like, yeah, it was really good. But that being said, they had me come and work a night. And as I worked that night with, at that point, David and another guy named Chris Longley, who is still with the family also. Uh, he's kind of, he's basically married into it, but he was the CDC at the time for the Hungry Cat and David ran it. And it was a really small line, uh, but they kind of were like, where are you working again? I said, Blowfish Sushi. And they're like, why would you be there? Like that, what the hell? And I said, I don't know. I said, but I, I haven't put my two weeks in. And they were like, what do you need to put your two weeks in at a place like that for? And I said, because, you know, I need to, you know, I want to go, you know, I'm not going to just quit on them. So they were like, okay, well, whatever. But I said, but I am, I have two days off. So I'll come and work with you guys those two days off for the next, for the next two weeks. And then I'll move on, come on board. And they were excited about that. And uh, that's kind of it. And then I, I spent the next uh, almost three years uh, at the Hungry Cat, like definitely over two and a half years at the Hungry Cat. And at one point in time, Chris had to move on for his own personal uh, complications. So I took over as the CDC there, did that for a long time, loved it. We, you know, it was, uh, it was such a great busy restaurant in Hollywood at the time. And it was 2004, 2005, 2006. And that was really the first restaurant before the big boom in LA happened in 2010. It was really the first thing that was really focusing more. Suzanne had 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 Luke at the time. She had AOC. And there were, you know, obviously there's Spago. Obviously there's um, other restaurants around that had a lot of good things going for it. But there wasn't this idea that like kind of Brooklynization of restaurants that is now sweeped over the entire country and all the hot spots that have, you know, all the great food cities right now in the country kind of look the way that Brooklyn did back in the early 2000s, where it's just these kind of smaller, super hyper focused restaurants of people that are just kind of doing what the hell they want to do and, and and not having to worry about technique too much or anything like that. They're just wanting to put good food in front of people. You know, the real kind of like, to me, it's the epitome of a great neighborhood restaurant where it's just like, I'm not overly concerned about what my technique is on this. I'm What I'm concerned about is that the end product tastes good and that the customer is going to come back because they enjoy eating the food. That was the real feeling that we got. We were dealing, you know, the, the bar program was absolutely amazing. Real fresh juice program that was really blowing it away way. And, uh, you know, it got me to the farmer's market for the very first time. I mean, I had spent a year in San Francisco and, you know, at a very high-end restaurant at the time. And, you know, we went to the farmer's market, I think once uh, everything else was kind of delivered to us based off of ordering, but you never really got to know 
anything about, you know, the people you were getting your food from. When I transitioned and started working for for David and Suzanne, that was such a important role for all of their cooks to be a part of, was to go to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, shake hands with all the farmers, get to know them, get to know them very personally, understand what they're doing, encourage them to go down to the farms wherever they may be and really get their hands dirty. And it was kind of a big aha moment for me of what I really, really, really valued in food. It was the first time that I think food started making sense was the fact that the ingredient speaks a lot louder than the person cooking the ingredient. That it, To a degree, we are just a shepherd making sure that that ingredient is well-preserved. And I don't know, I just really grew up in, in, that little, in that little time. It's just something that I've not looked back ever since. I've kind of kept that. Obviously, it's Suzanne Gowen, so she comes from you know that Alice Waters lineage. So you have that strong California cuisine saying that 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 is whatever that means to to you or to anybody else. It's kind of like it does speak to the idea that you know vegetables and product and the people that you are getting things from are equally as important as anything else that that's inside the restaurant. And so that to me just has been kind of a core value and ethos and everything that I've done since. After about, you know, like I said, almost three years, I think our relationships were starting to dwindle a little bit. I think we just spent a little too much time. I think I'd kind of outworn my welcome a little bit. Uh, so it was time to move on. I kind of drifted a little bit between uh, 2007 until about 2010, worked at various places, some of them okay, some of them not okay. I just, I, I, I didn't really, you know, I spent some time baking bread at a cafe for about six months. I spent some time at a, again, I, somebody tried to hire me at a hotel, at a Morgan's Hotel group to do like a, a CDC program with them at the time. And that didn't work out. While I was kind of in that kind of transitional period, I had reconnected with uh, one of our other sous chefs at, um, at the Hungry Cat. And his name was Chris also, last name Phelps. We just started hanging out again, just like as friends, you know, cook friends and just coming up with crazy ideas, smoking a lot of weed and drinking a lot of beer and then coming up with some really dumb ideas until we came up with an actual good idea. We started thinking, you know, hey, all these places we've worked at over the last few years, we're always like, we're kind of butchering all the meat. We're making all the sausage. We're doing all the bacon. We're smoking all the fish. Why don't we just like do that? Why don't we just go get like a storefront and we'll just make bacon for restaurants and we'll, it won't be a restaurant. It'll just be a butcher shop. And I was like, oh, that's a fucking brilliant idea. Yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. That's how we're going to, you know, make a million dollars, but it's stuck and we really enjoyed the idea of it. And we started researching a lot of different types of pigs and different types of livestock and different types of farms in and around California of where we could get our product because we started really centralizing our thought of, well, if we're going to do this, let's just be California only. Let's just really think about using California product and doodling on my balcony at one, at some point in time, came up with a name, which was Salt's Cure and uh, came up with a real, you know, logo that kind of looked like a, you know, chubby three-year-old kind of drew it, uh, put that, we got a business plan together and we started shopping it around and people were like, this is not a great idea. You kind of need to 
expand on this. So we're like, oh, well, we'll do sandwiches in the daytime then. So we added that into the business plan. People started being more, a little bit more attracted to the idea, but we couldn't find money for shit. I mean, we nobody knew who we were. We had never been chefs. We had never worked for, you know, ourselves or anything like that. And luckily enough, like Chris's family had a little bit of money. So they were able to throw in a decent amount. And we found a location on the east side of West Hollywood, which uh, was next to a liquor store where, where where it was a big local scene for an east side of uh, of West Hollywood to hang out and and definitely uh, solicit a lot of things. But um, you know, we found a little storefront that, of course, was not a restaurant. And us being uh, business geniuses, we were like, let's turn this retail space into a restaurant because that won't cost a lot of money. That's exactly what we did. Somehow, on a shoestring budget, opened up a, a space that we were going to run as a butcher shop, a California only butcher shop that did sandwiches in the morning and we were going to do brunch on the weekend. The butcher shop, I think we closed that idea off in about a week and we just continued to cook because that's really what we were good at. But in the process of us building it, and again, I think that the process of us building it, we did a lot of, you know, there was catering in between. There was a lot of really good dinners. We are good at what we do as far as a craft of cooking. So I think that there was a lot of things that we came up with in that time period of building that restaurant that we just kind of somehow stumbled into opening it. And we got really lucky that it was successful, but it was very, very successful. We, you know, inside of being open for three weeks, we got voted as, you know, one of the best places to have brunch in Los Angeles at the time by Irene Verbilia. That time, Jonathan Gold was still working for LA Weekly. Uh, he came through and had a BLT sandwich, wrote a freaking sonnet about it in a very Jonathan Gold form of the way that he wrote. It was the only time we ever had a BLT sandwich on the menu. We never had a BLT sandwich on the menu ever again. Again, this was not a good business decision because people would walk in and say, do you guys have that BLT that Jonathan Gold was talking about? We said, absolutely not. No, that's not on the menu. And they would turn around and walk out. But we just kept on doing that and we never put it on. And, and I guess the reason why we didn't is that we basically had a menu of pork, beef, veal, chicken, a little bit of fish, and sometimes goats. And once a month, either myself or my, or my partner or, or eventually our, our head butcher would fly to San Francisco and would rent a Penske truck in San Francisco. And then we'd drive up to a, we had a friend that lived in uh, Yachtville, just behind Bouchon in, in, in Yachtville. And we would crash at his place overnight. And then we'd wake up in the morning and we'd head over to a, a farm called River Dog, which is where we were buying all of our pigs. And that's in Yolo County in California. And we'd get to Tim's place at River Dog and we'd fill the back of a truck up with as much ice as he could give us at the time. We'd throw eight whole pigs in the back of that thing, uh, wrapped up in, in, a, in a little bit of uh, trash bags. He'd fill us up with a bunch of vegetables and things like that that the pigs were eating on at the time. And then we would go over to Petaluma where we had a woman that raised veal uh, for us and we'd pick up a veal. We had a, a guy that would uh, that was doing ducks for us. We had a couple of other people uh, that were doing beef for us and things like that. The point is, we would fill this entire this Penske up with as much meat as we possibly could, and then we would drive it back down to Los Angeles. Then we would unload it and put it in our walk-in, and that was our product for the month. We became very, very popular for breakfast very quickly. And we only did breakfast on Saturday and Sunday, but we were a 25 seat restaurant. And inside of two months, we were doing 200 to 300 people every Saturday and Sunday in that 25 seat restaurant. And we only had four things on our brunch menu. One of them happened to be 
called a two by two by two, which is just two bacon, two eggs, two sausage. And we put a little buttermilk biscuit uh, off to the side. People went absolute ape shit for it. I mean, it's as if they never had a home cooked meal in Los Angeles. It was crazy. We obviously had to use all of the pork belly for that bacon to get through the month. We Most of all the rest of that product was turned into sausage. The chops were always pork chops, so on and so forth. But our menu was about 10 to 12 things every day, and it would revolve around where we were each animal. So sometimes you would have steaks, sometimes you would have braised beef, sometimes you'd have like little minute steaks or something like that. We got as creative as we possibly could, but we had to keep ourselves really restricted uh, on what we were doing so that we could keep up on a schedule of just how we were butchering all the animals. But that being said, that's the reason why we didn't have that BLT sandwich and we never could and never would. But if I could go back in time, I would have definitely put a BLT sandwich on the menu somehow, just bought more bacon, bought more pork belly and just made more bacon. But that wasn't part of the business plan. So we stuck to our guns and, you know, we made a good run at it at, at the original location. Yeah, we got a lot of really great reviews and people coming through and just really enjoying what we we're doing. It got us where we needed to be, uh, I think, mentally and professionally. And, and just as cooks, we were very proud of what we were building and what we had done. And then, you know, then it then it's kind of like the tough job to preserve the business and to come up with new ideas to keep yourself, um, uh, I guess, viable, you know. And so uh, I, we moved the restaurant in 2015. And then I left. Uh, Chris and I uh, got a divorce, I guess, in, uh, in 2017. We had a regular at the restaurant who owned a company called LGO, which is a big kind of large, it's a, it's kind of a, it's, it's, a, it's an appendix of Hillstone group. Uh, Bob, who owns the, the, the company was a Hillstone executive for, I don't know how many years, opened up 65 restaurants with Hillstone, but he created a business out of Phoenix. And he had about 11, 11 to 13 stores in between Phoenix and LA. So when I left Salt's Cure, I gave him a call and just, I needed something that was, I didn't want to be creative at all. I didn't want to have to think. I didn't want to have to use that muscle. And I, you know, and so I took a really corporate kind of executive chef job for two different locations in LA and just kind of pounded numbers, fired a lot of people and uh, did a lot of food costs, you know, and it was fantastic. I did it for about three years. I didn't have to worry so much about the food. I didn't have to, I, I, it was a real break. But after about three years of that, I was starting to get hungry again. I was starting to get itchy. And uh, at that point, uh, my wife now, Silvana, and I had uh, just gotten back from traveling back to the East Coast. And this is sometime around January 2020. And uh, we were like, I had been in L.A. at that point for almost almost 17 years. And I, and I said, I, I think I'm done. I think I got to get out of here. Uh, I'm ready to move on something else. And at that point, I was kind of thinking, let's get back to the East Coast. Let's go. Let's let's make the move to Brooklyn. She had spent more time in New York. She had, she had lived in New York for a little over a decade. And I think she always wanted to get back. Her family's in D.C. So we we're kind of thinking, maybe we'll go to D.C. Maybe we'll do this. Maybe we'll do that and get to that. But, you know, reality kind of struck. And we're like, what is it that you want to do? And I said, well, I want to open up my own restaurant again. I want to do that again. Well, what's how how realistic is that in a city like New York or DC? Well, it's not very realistic realistic at all unless I go out and get a bunch of investors like I've done before. And 
all that sort of thing. And she said, what about this city called Oklahoma City? And I was like, have you ever been to Oklahoma City? And she said, no. And I said, well, exactly, because there's no reason ever to go. And she said, yeah, but aren't you from there? And I'm like, you know, I'm from there. And she says, but, you know, there's this restaurant called Nonsuch. It just, you know, it just kind of got Bon Appetit's best new restaurant back in 2018. And I mean, there's this other, look at all these breweries that are popping up. And like, this seems nice. And they're building a park right here and all these things. And she really started trying to champion and campaign for Oklahoma City. And uh, I started doing some research and a little soul searching too, and kind of did the whole thing where it's like, you know, I've been away from my family for long enough. It would be nice to move back and just have a good, you know, good quality time with them, give them a few years that they kind of lost with me a little bit. So I said, screw it. And I said, let's try Oklahoma City. And, you know, right off the bat, we knew it was a place A, we could move to, B, we could buy a home, C, we could find something cheap and start a business, whatever that business would be. We didn't know what we wanted it to be. We knew we could we could do it. And so there, right there in January, we were like, okay, let's all, you know, we had already been engaged and we were thinking, okay, well, we were going to be married in uh, June in Palm Springs in 2020. We already had the whole thing all paid for and everything. The weirdest thing happened in LA starting in February. Uh, and a lot of people started getting really, really sick. It got really weird, really fast. And, uh, about March rolled around and, uh, we found ourselves jobless. We were like, well, are we going to stick around here in LA or should we go where it's significantly cheaper and try to save our money at this point? And so we moved to Oklahoma City in April of 2020 and hunkered down for the pandemic only lasted here for three months. It was as quick as it possibly could have been. And so April, May, June, and then everybody was reopened in July. So we did the pandemic thing here and it was great. I mean, Oklahoma City is as large as Los Angeles with one tenth of the population. So, you know, you never have to worry about uh, the highways being uh, crowded. So it was really freeing. From there, I had taken a job at a place called the Jones Assembly here in Oklahoma City. And this is, I'd started making some connections when we decided we were going to move here because I was thinking, okay, when we get to Oklahoma City next year be, via 2021, then I'll try to have something lined up with some people that have spaces out here already, just so that I can spend a year working and get to kind of know people and get to know the kind of the the, the scene out here a little bit, because I, it was as foreign to me as going to a new city, um, even though I was from here. So the Jones Assembly is a lovely uh, restaurant kind of on the outskirts of downtown Oklahoma City. It's part of a it's it, it used to be a Ford factory and it's giant. It's also a music venue. It's a Absolutely enormous restaurant. I think they can seat like 330 people at a time. It does ungodly numbers. It's very fast paced. It's very high volume. I went and I took a job there and uh, I was, I was lucky enough to be able to work through the pandemic. And I was lucky enough, uh, to have that job until we, um, talked my dad into taking over a small storage unit that he had on his property. Uh, here, even a little further outside of downtown Oklahoma City on 10th Street next to the fairgrounds, you know, we looked at this building and said, why don't we flip it and do something there? And we didn't know what we were going to do at that point either. But, you know, my dad was kind of into the idea. So we got plans together and we, you know, started building the space out kind of piece by piece, kind of doing it ourselves a little bit and hiring some people when we needed uh, we needed help. And uh, eventually we came up with uh, what we have now, which is Sedalia's. And I think halfway through building it, we were thinking we were just going to do some sort of kind of 
uh, rotisserie chicken, like fire roasted rotisserie chicken. We were going to do like, you know, really good taro beans and like make our own flour tortillas and just kind of do that. So it's a little bit more of a takeout style restaurant. And then like halfway through it, we said, <clears throat> that already exists here. Why don't we just do something completely different? And so we said, fuck it. And we're going to, let's do fucking seafood. Let's do the one thing that everybody in town says cannot actually exist in Oklahoma City. Do the one thing that they say the customers don't want. They say the city doesn't want. They say nobody wants and it's not fresh. How are you going to get it fresh? It's going to be so expensive. You can't do it. And here we are uh, a little over almost a year and a half later and uh, we're doing just fine with it. So, you know, for us, we're very, very, very excited about bringing something like this to this market, it helped us prove a lot of people wrong without having to put a, like a thumb in their eye. You know, a lot of the things, you know, every market just needs people to, to just fucking do it, you know, like just stop bitching about stuff and just go do something. And that's kind of what we did. It's been great ever since. You mentioned that you were going to law school and we've had a decent amount of people that have gone down that path or even medical school path, people that have been guests on this podcast originally. And then somewhere in there, they're just like, nope, this isn't for me. Did you know early on that like you didn't really want to be a lawyer or how far in the process did you get before you were like, nah? I was doing pre-law undergrad. I was a classics major, a letters major to be exact. And I was doing pre-law and creative writing. And I knew year three, I worked my ass off my first two years of school, made straight A's both those years. There was something that was clicking outside of school for me. I was working. I was enjoying it. I was working with my hands. I just enjoyed it more. I enjoyed it more than just cramming so many books in and cramming so much just information into my brain that's like, is this stuff even useful right now? And I just, I just got burnt out. I don't enjoy the confinements of being like tied down. And I felt like I was going in that direction. Cooking at that point had become this thing that was going to allow me to not be tied down. And it was scary as shit. Like I said, my family did not necessarily approve of my decision to leave school and to be cooking. I mean, cooking in Oklahoma City was what people that didn't finish high school were doing at the time. You know, it was there was a really great program called the Coach House Apprenticeship here in the city at that time. But if you weren't doing that, then you were just a guy that liked to fucking smoke meth and work in kitchens. You know what I mean? It's it's unfortunate, but that's kind of... I mean, this was also like the Italian restaurant that I bust tables at, the server smoked fucking cigarettes in the kitchen. Like, I mean, it was rowdy. It was a rowdy-ass place. It wasn't too far away from the truth, but... Like I said, there was something about it I just really enjoyed. And I think the only thing that made my family feel better about it, whether or not I never needed their approval. I don't, I've never asked for approval from anybody in my family, but it always feels good when people accept what it is that you're wanting to pursue. But I do think that that, that was also the beginning of the Food Network's rise also. And I think that them seeing, my mom secretly has always just wanted me to be a celebrity chef. Like, go get a job. You know, she's kind of like, you know, it's like if I was going to join the any type of armed forces, she'd be like, well, if you joined the Air Force or whatever, that's fine because you're probably not going to see action that way. So she wants me to be a celebrity chef so I'm not like on my feet all day and have the possibility of cutting my finger off. So it's kind of one of those things. But you know, for me, I think that had a lot for them to help out. And, you know, my family's not, we're, we're not a bunch of gourmands or anything like that. They don't understand the restaurant industry 
They know as much about it now as I did when I first left Oklahoma. They know more about it now, obviously, because we've shined a bigger light into their world by coming back to Oklahoma City. They don't understand the difference between, you know, what the corporate, you know, box restaurants on the side of the highway are compared to the small chef-driven restaurants that kind of scatter in and around different neighborhoods. They just know price points and one's more expensive than the other. And they want to go to the place where two people can eat for $21.99. So with the sushi restaurant you were working at in Oklahoma City before you moved, was he getting ingredients and stuff from Japan? Because my dad used to go to Oklahoma City for the FAA school down there, uh, the big training school. And they do air traffic controllers, but a bunch of certification for other parts and components too as well. I remember him talking about there being some sort of like sushi chef down there. It was really random how that guy wound up being there, but he would bring in ingredients from Japan and it was like the only place like in five states, like anywhere near it that this guy was doing it. Was that or was that a different restaurant? He was probably talking about Tokyo. Uh, there's a sushi restaurant called Tokyo. Uh, he Tokyo opened up, I think, in 81, 82, 83, something like that. But he was really balling for a long time. And still is. They just tore down their old restaurant and rebuilt a new one. And I mean, they're going strong. But Gil, we were bringing in most of our stuff from Dallas. Uh, he had a connection via Dallas. So we were we were getting trucks of stuff coming up from there. But like the quality of the tuna was prefabbed you know, frozen packages of, of tuna. The salmon was always fresh. The hamachi was always fresh. So there was a few fresh fish that were coming in, but like there was like two or three fish per week that we were actually breaking down and fabbing for sushi. But at the same, at the end of the day, this was still very roll heavy, Americanized uh, sushi. You know, for me, it didn't matter one way or another. I mean, to, you know, I had never had a piece of raw fish before walking into that place. And I think it still took me about a month working there before I actually started trying it. Culinary School, California Culinary Academy. Are you going to school at the same time that you're working at Rubicon, like six days a week, 10 hour days or whatever you're doing there? My time in San Francisco was uh, basically, well, Monday through Friday, I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. I am on the bus at six o'clock. I'm at school at 6.30. I'm out of school at noon. I'm at Rubicon at 12.30. I leave Rubicon anywhere between 10.30 and 11.30. I lived in the upper Haight across the street from the park, and I would walk the financial district all the way home most nights so that I could kind of stop in some bars and have a, a beer or a shot or something on my way back and just to experience some of San Francisco in general. And then Saturday, I had the day off, and that was always really cool. I could walk down to Amoeba Music and, and, and you know, buy some records and things like that. And then on Sunday, the restaurant was black, and that was my day off. And I'd walk down to Lower Haight and go to Toronado's and have a bunch of overproofed beers and uh, walk around and go home and sleep and do that, do that all over again. I crammed a lot of work uh, in, in that year. It was a lot. It was a, it was a, it was a tremendous feat. So I always ask this to any chef that comes on because everybody always has a different opinion, different answer. Some of it's based on their own life experience, but culinary school, you went through it. What's your take on it? You know, if someone in your restaurant now who's working there was like, Hey, you know, I want to open a restaurant on my own one day. Do you think I should go somewhere to go to culinary school? You know, what would you tell them? It's an individual by individual basis. Um, it depends upon the person. The only like concrete advice I would give to anybody is work in the industry for at least two years before doing it. 
yes, you are going to then end up going to school and you're going to learn a bunch of things that you already know. And you may think that, wow, this is a complete waste of time and a complete waste of money. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter what culinary program you go through, just like it doesn't matter what higher education program you go through. If you apply yourself in higher education, no matter what it will be, you will find connections and you will find a better a path for yourself. So if you take it seriously, it doesn't matter if it's kind of quasi a waste of time because I already know how to use my knife and shit like that. That's great. 9.9% of chefs know how to use their knife. They wouldn't know how to calculate food costs if you threw it at them. So there's always something that you can learn at culinary school. So you got to know what the job is when you get out of school. The problem is kids going in without any experience and thinking, well, I'm a chef now, and they are not, unfortunately. Was there one part or any part of the curriculum at culinary school that you thought was super beneficial for you? The wine program. I fell in love with wine moving to San Francisco and being lucky enough to work at a restaurant like Rubicon that had Larry Stone as the proprietor, who was the first master psalm in the country running the wine program. Uh, which every single bar manager from that restaurant went on to be very tremendous psalms in and around the city that are still creating what San Francisco is now. I was able to, you know, you do two different classes. You do about, I think we did about six weeks worth of wine studying in culinary school. And that was definitely the thing that I, it was my favorite part of the entire curriculum. And then I really enjoyed the butchery department as well. Was there one part that you wish like they touched on more or spent more time on? I, I think realistically writing business plans and things like that. I think that this is kind of a broader opinion that I have with education in general, but I think that in all curriculums, we lack realism in, in curriculums. We're not setting any student up with the idea of what like real life looks like in the moment. So like, how do you write a business plan? How do you understand? Like, how do you read a contract? Somebody at some point in time is going to say, Hey, you're a really good chef and I've got a lot of money and I'd like to open up a restaurant and I'll give you 10% of the profits after I get paid back. And after everybody else gets paid back, you don't want to come and join. Oh, but you're going to have to work six days a week and you're going to have to do, you know, a lot of people are stepping into a lot of shitty contracts. And I think that there should be a lot more information about how to avoid bad decisions. I don't know if that's realistic or not, but that's something I would just like to have more people coming through that have had real life experiences, kind of giving one-on-one -on -one conversations with the classes to kind of say, hey, these are certain landmines that you can step on and these are how to avoid it. You mentioned that you worked in a couple hotel environments and it was just not for you. What was it that made it so challenging or it just didn't take for you just the, was it adaptability? Was it just the red tape of trying to get anything done? You know, you got to go through this and that, or what was it? A little bit of both and just the overall corporate aspect of it. I was probably too young for it at the time and too stubborn and too combative. You know, I can, I myself can be quite the contrarian. So um, I just don't think it, it was a good, it wasn't a good uh, fit for me, but Hotels don't necessarily breed the best workers. There's a lot of people that have jobs at hotels, uh, as in stewards and uh, people that are kind of cleaning up after you. So I think that, like, for me, you, you get done with your sh your service and the cooks are basically just, like, rewrapping all of their pans and then leaving their station completely filthy. And then some crew at the, in the, in the nighttime comes in and cleans everything for you. So it's kind of like, it's like, it's, I, I don't know. It's kind of like, you don't have to pick up after yourself. And I, I just don't love that. 
type of training for people because I think that that they're gonna it's gonna slightly make them the possibility of making them a little lazy. But I mean, those were my experiences. I'm sure there are hotels in and around the country, especially smaller ones and inns that are doing you know wonderful things that are not like my experiences at all. These were high dollar. I mean, Morgan's Hotel Group is a very big chain, and of course, the Ritz Carlton is owned by Marriott. So you know, these are highly corporate things, and it just it, it just it just didn't take for me. When you had the restaurant in LA, Salt Cure, you guys didn't do dietary restrictions, right? Salts would do some when we could. We weren't as like, like Animal was really hell bent on like absolutely no modifications, no dietary restrictions. But if we could, we would. We just didn't have a menu that was like, hey, here's something for everybody. Moving on to Sedalia, your restaurant now. You guys did some pop-ups before you opened the official spot, right? Was that just to refine the concept? Was that just to kind of buy time? Or was that like to see if there was a market for the concept? Like what was kind of your logic behind starting out as a pop-up? Marketability to get our name out there. It was really to generate buzz more than anything. The food we did in our pop-ups wasn't even the food that we like the only thing that would have been similar would we were opening oysters at our pop-ups but we were doing dishes at our pop-ups that we've never done here it was really just to put a name out there and to get people wondering who the fuck are these guys so as you mentioned you know you guys take over this kind of storage shed uh, that's kind of on the property or next to you know your family's playground business how much of a challenge was it to make that into a functioning restaurant? Because of like, I can't imagine there was much, if any plumbing, right. And you probably had to rerun. A- we had to bring sewage in. We had to bring all the electrical in. This was the last time this building was used was in the forties as a gas station, like where you would go and pay for your gas. Other than that, it was just a place where my, siblings and I kept all of our old shit. We had to bring sewage in, everything. We built a patio and I'm standing inside of the patio now, which is now our dining room. I'm looking outside of the window that is our new patio, which is actually a fully enclosed, almost greenhouse at this point so that we can have extra seating to winterize what we have going on. Uh, We've done nothing but stop building and making space for people to come in. And, you know, the inside where the bathroom is and kind of is our quote unquote, like real dining room, I guess, or counter space is what we call it. Only sits six people. We've had to adapt as quickly as possible. You know, we just added a new shelf yesterday and that gave us nine linear square feet of much needed space. And now I'm already looking at where we're going to add the next shelf so we can get much more, even more space. So it's been an ongoing process, but it's also been part of the joy of doing what we're doing right now is just that ongoing process. But at some point you are a victim of just limitations in the fact that you can only add so many shelves, you know, you can only add on to the building so much. Obviously it's early, you know, you guys have only been open for a year and a half, but things have been going well as we're going to get into, but can you envision a world down the road where it's like, okay, we need a bigger space. Not for this concept. Sedalias will be here. If we go and find a bigger space, it's going to be something completely different. We learned a big lesson at Salt's Cure. At least I did. I, whether or not Chris did or not, I have the slightest idea. But moving our concept that we had, which was a 25-seat concept, and then turning it into a 75-seat concept, 
completely fucking destroyed us. It was good for about five minutes. And then you realized, oh, shit, you dummy, your food is so niche. Not everybody wants it. Keeping it small, keeping it niche, keeping it focused the way that we have it is the only way that a place like Sedalia's, in my humblest opinion, is going to survive, especially in this market. The additions that we've added on to at this point, we can seat about 40 people, I think, total, if we had the patio completely humming at the time. But we don't open it up all the time. You know, it's based off of we use talk as our reservation service, and it's just based off of where we see our numbers there. And really, the patio upstairs is used for larger parties and things like that. The one thing Oklahoma City market is, is a market where a lot of people like to go out together. There's always large parties wanting to go. I never, it's the craziest shit. This Everybody wants to eat with like 15 of their friends. It's crazy. As far as this concept, it's going to stay here. It is already gone to the limit of where it can go. As far as, you know, I can't add on any more cooking equipment, so I can only cook as much food that I have space for at this moment. We want to do other concepts, so we'll just do other concepts. And that's that's more the direction that I think that we're going to find ourselves in. It doesn't make sense then for what you're doing to expand Sedalia's even to secondary, third locations where there's one in Tulsa, right? It's the same format. It's You want it to be, this is the only location. This is what we're doing here. Anything else that we open within kind of your restaurant group is a different concept, different function. Oh, yeah. Uh, one, 100 percent. There's not going to be a Sedalia's Tulsa. I'll, I'll do a Sedalia's Cochabamba before we'll do a Sedalia's Tulsa. Let's put it that way. So the menu, you know, you guys are a seafood focused restaurant. I, I don't think there's any meat really on the menu. I think it's all pretty much seafood, right? Yeah. Unless we have beef heart. Beef heart is the only meat non-seafood product that we, that protein that we serve. You kind of mentioned that's a pretty risky concept. I think the only thing that might be riskier to put in Oklahoma City might be like a vegan restaurant or something like that might be a little bit further. But you mentioned doing pop-ups and stuff to kind of get your name out there. Once you guys kind of started doing stuff, did you see people like open up to the idea of it? Because a lot of people in, you know, I'm in Ohio, so the Midwest and, and the Plains and stuff, they're, they'll tell you, I don't like seafood. And you'll have a conversation with you like, well, what don't you like about it? And they're just like, I don't like it. Well, is there a specific type you don't like? Is it fresh water? Is it salt water? Did you have a bad piece of fit? Like what was, you have to like almost dig into their history of it to find out why they don't like a particular thing. Aside from them just being like, well, I don't, I don't like it. Okay. Well, yeah. Cause all you ever had was like the filet of fish from McDonald's. Like, yeah, you're not going to like most things probably if that was your first seafood experience. So once you started getting your name out there and everything, did you see the reception come back and people were like, Oh wow, this is actually really amazing. I'm so glad I tried this. I, I would have never like done this on my own. It's been absolutely mind blowing the reception that we've gotten and the people that want this type of food here, not just, Oh, this is uh, seafood, but this is focused and it's forward thinking. Like it's been a hundred percent. I would say 99.9% good feedback. We've had our 0.1% of people that were too expensive for, or the amenities at the restaurant just aren't nice enough and so on and so forth. But as far as the reception of people that were like, thank you so much for having seafood here in the city. Uh, it's been crazy. It's been really, really, really crazy. I did not expect for it to be as positive as, as it has been, but it really showed me a lot about 
A, the city and the people inside of the city that want the next thing. A big component that you guys have is the oysters, right? And what's the sourcing strategy? Because you get oysters from a few different places. So do you try and do a mix where it's, you know, PEI or Atlantic, some Gulf stuff, some West Coast stuff? Or are you, is it really just who's available and who you can get stuff from at that time? Um, no, I, I, we're primarily East Coast only, unfortunately. West Coast is very, very hard to get out. We will bring in some oysters from the Hamahama area uh, because they ship pretty much on the reg. But uh, as far as food coming out of the West Coast right now is very, very difficult. It's been almost, it's been very difficult since COVID. I think that their numbers dropped so much that they're just now rebuilding all of their all of their su- surplus and you know there's so many people that live on the west coast and they're supplying to all those people already so we don't get a lot of phone calls back to get food out of the west coast but we have found people on the east coast that are ready to play ball i had relationships from los angeles uh out in boston already and i remember when i left la uh, i had a conversation with one of my main purveyors uh, on the East Coast. And I said, hey, we're going to move to Oklahoma City. Would you be able to ship out there too? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So just let me know when you guys get up and running. And so that was already kind of a done deal. And then from there, just, you know, with the power of, you know, social media, I've found other people, especially, you know, I'll see what people are doing, you know, in or, or, or the purveyors people are using in Nashville or in Austin or in, you know, other spaces that are kind of like, quote unquote, landlocked to a degree. And then I'll just hit those people up and see if they're able to bring up here. So I've got a really good purveyor out of uh, that supplies uh, Austin and Houston and Dallas right now with really good seafood. They manage individual boats, individual day boats. And so they're bringing in very, very, very high quality top dollar stuff. Uh, and then I'm able to get, you know, as many times a week as I need to. They'll, they'll put it on a, on a plane and just put it and just bring it up here whenever I need it. Um, so that's been beneficial with the oyster game. We used a company called Island Creek out of Duxbury for a long time. They're really big in the retail scene. Uh, they have a really good retail presence. You know, they are a company that's like, we'll send oysters to anybody, anywhere, anytime. So I kind of hooked up with them really quickly and we're using them pretty much, uh, exclusively for a long time. And then, you know, with some of these other relationships I've made over the last few months, I've now found another broker out of the Boston area that's just a little bit more cost effective for us that we're getting stuff from as, as well getting every time i find a new purveyor they have a new product you know like all of a sudden they're also bringing in these clams that nobody else had or another type of sea urchin that nobody else has it's you know and so we're constantly discovering new products just based off of finding new individuals that are willing to ship things to us so you've said previously i think in some stuff that i was reading you know the bulk of the menu that you have is kind of designed to push people outside of their comfort zone you've kind of designed it that way how far are you pushing people outside of their comfort zone? Like, have you found the limit to where people just won't respond to, you know, some ingredient or something that you have on the menu, some seafood item or something? Not yet. No, uh-uh. we really haven't. You know, we always have sea urchin on the menu. It was a lo- slow build, but now it is, is one of our best sellers. Octopus has been the biggest seller for a very long time. There's something about octopus in Oklahoma City that anybody that has it on their menu, people go crazy for it. We've brought in sea snails. People have ate them up. We haven't brought in any sea cucumber yet. I'm still waiting on that one. That one might be the limit uh, on that one. 
But uh, there has been a lot of interesting little things that we've put together and everybody has just been willing to try them. I think that once they're here, they're willing, they're kind of, they kind of know they're going to go uh, on a different little food journey, so to speak. And they're just, they're here to, to, to go on that uh, with us. And everybody's happy to get things. You'll get the individual that says, ah, I'm not going to eat that. I don't ever eat that. I don't ever want that. But at least once a week, we have somebody that's never had an oyster before in their life and they come in and they eat it. And then we see them again next week and they want more. And then they're trying more seafood. So we've really exposed and, and, and opened the door for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, ingredient, I, I think price is probably more of a handicap. Uh, than anything, because unfortunately, you know, when I, when I do bring in fresh prawns uh, and spot prawns and things like that, it's, uh, it's, it's a hefty bill on the menu. And then somebody sees two or three prawns on a plate and they're like, what in the hell? And that's, you know, that is where this market is very, can be very tricky because this market still looks at value first. And then, it, you know, is my $20 going to make me completely stuffed or am I going to be hungry after? And that, that's the tightrope that we really, that we really walk on a daily basis. Your wife, Silvana, she's, you know, Bolivian. She's got some Bolivian heritage. How much of that influences the menu? Do you kind of bring in some Bolivian flavors or not necessarily recipes, but uh, maybe techniques or has it really just not kind of made its way into the restaurant and, and that's okay. And that was, you know, just kind of how it worked out. Well, like I said, we do, uh, the one non fish that we have is our beef heart, the beef heart anticucho, just like in Peru and Bolivia is the number one street food that you're going to find anywhere in any city, uh, in and around Bolivia. And that, uh, that has anytime a, a, a rancher calls me and says, Hey, I've got some heart for you. I'll go pick it up. And then the beef heart, the beef anticucho is on the menu. And we make that very traditionally with a uh, peanut sauce that has ahi amarillo paste blended inside of the peanuts. So it's kind of like a spicy peanut butter cumin. Um, and that's pretty, that's a pretty standard, uh, uh, take on, on an anticucho. So that, that's always there. And then, you know, my sous chef here is also Bolivian. His family's from La Paz. My, uh, his family's from Cochabamba. How the hell the two Bolivian people in Oklahoma found each other, I haven't the slightest idea. But I'm guessing whenever we were hiring in the very beginning, he saw, A, he's a big wine nerd also. And he saw, you know, natural wine, half Bolivian seafood and was like, yeah, I, this is intriguing. I want to go work over there. So he kind of showed up and uh, that's the way that it is. And he has been able to travel back to Bolivia a lot more than my wife has. So he's always got a little bit more of a fresh take on what's going on. So those flavors do intersect. I mean, also, you know, my sous chef's also young and, and you know, he is reading every cookbook that's ever been printed. So he wants to do all the Nordic food. He wants to do all the Japanese food. He wants to do everybody's cuisine all at once. And, and, and so sometimes we stray away from where we want to keep the restaurant. But when Sylvan and I kind of came up with the menu, we wanted to keep it very, you know, if we were going to pull from Europe, we wanted to be more Spanish influenced, you know, working with the people that I worked with in LA for so long, the, the, you know, they, all of their restaurants are very Mediterranean-esque, you know, kind of south of France. So I'm, I'm very familiar with Mediterranean-style cooking. 
we just have kind of started adapting some of those to be a little bit more, you know, have Spanish undertones. And with that Spanish undertone, obviously that bleeds directly into all South American cuisine. And so that's kind of where we try to, when I feel like we've con- kind of gone too far astray on making too many fucking garums or too many goddamn soy sauces and shit like that, then I'll like bring it back. And say, okay, let's let's just put a you know fucking aioli on the plate and just call it a day, as opposed to yeah, I don't know how many goddamn misos we got going on right now. There there is a central place that we like to. There is a pendulum. There's a center of that pendulum we like to bring ourselves back to uh, when we get the opportunity. But at the same time, we change the menu every single week. Uh, there's something that changes on it every single week. There's a lot that stays, but we're constantly developing, constantly growing. Every time we find something that we like, we'll tinker with it for a few weeks and then we'll let it run for a little while. But there's always tinkering. There's always discovering. There's always thinking, oh, you know what? The same idea is going to taste good with these ingredients also. Let's just throw that in there too. It's really, really great. And then, you know, we have cooks here from Oklahoma City. You know, my sous chef may be Bolivian, but he grew up in a small town called Perkins and, in, 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 you know, just south of Stillwater in Oklahoma. The best restaurant in Perkins is probably McDonald's. The filet of fish is probably the most gourmet thing they have. And I really don't give a shit if I offend anybody by saying that. But that's probably the most gourmet thing they have. Doing some of the things that we're doing and them seeing the products that we're bringing in, it's like toddlers at Christmas every single time we bring in new product. They're excited about it. They've never seen it. They've never tasted it. They've never felt it. There's, I'm allowing them to use their imaginations and to focus in on recipes that they think that they really like. And we work through it and we put these dishes together. And this is shit that they would never have an opportunity of seeing inside the city just because we just don't have enough restaurants that are doing similar things. They are out there, but sometimes the price points are a little too high for them. So we do try to focus ourselves as a kind of South American in in essence and at heart, but that can really mean anything. At the end of the day, I've never been to South America, so I have to cook the food that if you don't know your identity on the plate, then you're still not a chef yet. You're still learning. You're still training. The second you know how to put your personality on the plate and you're competent in that, that's when you've kind of moved past that whole, um, I'm still figuring out who I am as a, as, as a cook. Earlier kind of this year, you guys were named and included on Bon Appetit's 24 best new restaurants list. Did that change anything for the restaurant uh, when that came out or was it kind of just business as usual? No, we, we got a good bump on it. It came at a good time. Summers can be really brutal uh, here. So that came out in September and it really picked us up from having a pretty brutal summer. Summers are hot here. People travel. Uh, most of our clientele is pretty affluent. So they're all, nobody's here. Nobody's in town. It's all very sporadic. So we needed, we needed the bump in, uh, in, uh, sales at the time. So it came really at the, at the right time. And it was a good wave for about eight weeks. And ever since, and, you know, November was fantastic. And then we're kind of moseying ourselves into, you know, the end of the year, which is always a busy time also. So it really came at a really good time. You've opened restaurant in LA and Oklahoma city. Now, what was kind of the biggest difference between going through the process in each location? Um, they both have their challenges. I think that the process working with the city of Los Angeles, which we were working with West Hollywood, thankfully, 
because LA is much more difficult to work with. But we were working with West Hollywood, super small, super, you know, the, you know, the manager of the city will just invite you in his office and shoot the shit with you and, and, and that sort of thing, even though they're still, they were really helpful. They kind of guided us really well. Here in Oklahoma City, not so much. It was kind of like every time I turned around, I had done the correct step, but nobody was telling me I needed to do that step. So it was kind of like, oh, I, I kind of went from A to C as opposed to A, B, C. And, uh, you know, I, I just was constantly like fumbling over myself. When we got opened, it was much easier. Like the inspections in Oklahoma were pretty easy. People just kind of walking in and looking and being like, yeah, that looks good. See you later. And like, all right, we passed. You know, I mean, the, 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 we have what, what's called the ABLE Commission here, which is, which is what runs our alcohol laws. When the, lieutenant for the able commission came to do our inspection he walked in he said well where are the tvs and i said we don't have one he goes but this is the bar right and i said well no we're going to be an oyster bar and he said oyster bar here and i said yeah and he goes all right well good luck you passed and they just walked out all right man you know more power to you it's still the wild west out here to a degree but the city could be much more helpful in that direction but other than that they leave you the f alone you know there's nobody that comes through uh ever to bother you i mean this is a very business friendly state so uh once once you're up and running and you're and as long as you're paying your taxes they don't really care do you have any concerns with Overfishing, you know, sober line upon seafood, overfishing's an issue. I think I read something the other day that they were talking about like the water just getting too warm for I think like coddling eggs and stuff like that. Yeah, I know exactly. I read what you were reading. Um, I a thousand percent have a lot of issues. Again, I, you know, I have said, and I say it to my staff all the time the only thing sustainable coming out of the ocean are probably oysters, and that is it. I think uh, some mollusks mussels and and clams and things like that equally as sort of sustainable but there is not a farmed fish or a wild fish coming out of the ocean that's good for the environment right now so as a business owner that created this concept we have kind of you know made our deal with the devil so to speak um, but what we do is we try as hard as we can to again find captains that run day boats that catch what they catch and we buy what they what they catch uh, as opposed to specifically saying i have to have this high dollar fish on my menu i have to have this high dollar fish on my menu and i have to have this high dollar fish on my menu i mean we will deal with a lot of like bluefin tuna belly and stuff like that here like i said i'm trying to buy it from people that i think are doing it as I don't even, sustainable is not a word, especially when it comes to fishing anymore. The oceans are warming up. Obviously, it's going to get radically different. There's another reason why getting stuff out of the West Coast is so damn difficult is also because the waters are just getting so damn hot. Nothing is sticking anymore. Everything's dying. It is something that I, I do uh, concern myself with. But, you know, as I said before, Sedalis is only going to be this one concept, this type. And, you know, our footprint on the world, our 10 to 12 item menu here is that being said, you know, we can also always pivot and change the concept whenever we want. So it is there. We always have that to, to look at as well. Lab grown fish. Would you ever consider working with it if it got to a level that was close to the real thing? Yeah, I'm not going to say no right now. I don't know enough about it to just, you know, dogmatically say yes or no. I'm open to any of those ideas. But I, I also, and you know, again, I, I just, 
Like, do we really want to grow fish in a lab or do we just want to say, hey, maybe there's no tuna for one fucking year. I think we could all do it, you know, and, and then maybe that's a maybe that's extremely, you know, uh, crazy for me to think. But it's like I just feel like the latter is a lot easier than getting shit grown in a lab that we're all going to enjoy. I'm sure like my son, when he's my age in 40 years, I'm sure he'll be eating lab food all the time uh so he'll enjoy it because that's what he knows but for the rest of us i i just don't i mean unless you consider that what we're eating from mcdonald's already is a lab food already then you know the more you know go for it i don't fucking know yeah i just wonder it's it is weird to think that we could very well live to a point where like food made from a lab is like relatively 50 percent of like the market share like that's just weird to think about yeah, we're going to get the lab food before we get the fucking hoverboards that they told us at Back to the Future. We're going to get the lab food first. And that, it, I have a problem with that. I have a big, big, big problem with that. We should have gotten the hoverboards like 10 years ago. You know, so much of the restaurant industry is taking something that nobody wanted and making it delicious. Like, you know, barbecue, like that's the whole ethos. Chicken wings, like it was considered a trash product before people figured out a way to make it delicious. Kampachi for a number of years in the US was something that nobody wanted until eventually it made its way, you know, into some people went overseas and saw it in Japan. And it's like, oh, it's delicious. And now it's like beyond like reasonable in terms of price. You know, you deal with a lot of purveyors and stuff. What is kind of the next quote unquote trash fish that you could see becoming, you know, mainstream? Green crabs. <clears throat> Those are the things, man. Every all the purveyors on the East Coast, that's what they're trying to cram down everybody's uh everybody's gullet at this point is going to be green crabs. They're an invasive uh crab species that goes inside a shellfish and they kind of burrow in there and they slowly eat the shellfish on the inside and they grow themselves until they are able to get out of the shell. You can buy a bushel of those now for, I think, $10. And people are trying to get you to make stocks out of them. They're trying to get you to fry them in a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, I've seen them at dim sum menus around the city here where people are taking them and just putting them a little cornstarch and deep frying them. They don't have a great flavor whatsoever, but they are kind of a trash thing that is invasive that people would like us to start. Uh, figuring out a way to make more gourmet. I, I have not gone down that road just yet. Anytime the, the fishing boats have like bluefish and, you know, kind of throwaway fish and stuff like that, we always buy that. And that kind of, to me, I think bluefish is sort of still considered pretty trashy in a lot of different areas, unless you're overly familiar with it. But we love it here and we sell a lot of it. But yeah, if I had to put my finger on it, I would say green crabs right now, especially in the sea world. You know, because I grew up on the East Coast and it was always a fish that even if you went on like a one of the little charter fishing day things and whatnot, like you'd catch bass, you'd catch flounder and bluefish were like the three things you go for. And nobody ever wanted to like keep the bluefish. They would always give it to the boat captain or, or one of the people on the boat or, or something like that. Be like, hey, you know, do you want to take it? And some of it was, you know, tourist people and whatnot too coming down, you know, for the, the summer week or whatever. But it was until, you know, you had to find a recipe and I got to find it. But like the amount of stuff that you had to add to like get like the oil out of the skin and all this stuff and it, it would come out and it's really good. And you could grill it and all this stuff, but you just had to do a lot of preparation to get it to a point. But once you did, like it was delicious. But yeah, people just don't really understand it or didn't really want to put the work in kind of. 
Yeah, my cooks right now all want to get bluefish tattoos on them. They're, they're like, we're like team bluefish right now. Uh, just the way the skin cooks, just everything about it. We cook basically, I've got a giant yakitori grill, basically. I've got like a 43-inch by like 15-inch yakitori grill that we just pile with bichochan for service. And that's what we're cooking everything over. And uh, just the way that that fish behaves on that grill is absolutely amazing. A lot of the preparations that we do for everything here also just is a preservation, just because, again, I, don't, I can't fly stuff in on a daily basis. It's just not cost effective right now, nor is it good for the environment. So we really do things kind of like once a week, every once in a while, we do things twice a week. But all the fish that comes in, we get they all get broken down and they all get set up in some way with a little bit of salt on them to kind of leach out as much of the water as possible. So all the fish have a slight curing effect on them. And it's just an easy way for us to preserve the longevity uh, and the freshness of all the fish. But, you know, just that little bit of manipulation for the for the bluefish and then putting it on a on, on a grill in that style is just it's it really it really hums really well. How hard has it been to change the narrative that Oklahoma City has a food scene and it's more than just steakhouses? Because I think when people think Oklahoma City, they think goat, cattle country, steak, tornadoes, oil fields, universities. I don't think that we've really begun. I think that it's, I'm more focused on trying to change the narrative inside of the city, much more heavily focused on trying to, with, again, one thing Okies are, are extremely stubborn people. We do not like, Anybody telling us what we should or should not do. You have an entire state of people that are still pissing and whining because Kevin Durant left years ago and they get their feelings hurt very, very quickly. They don't like being told how to do things or what to do things. They're, I'm a grown ass person and I'll do it the way I want to do it. And that's just the mentality. This is like, these are people that did not leave during the Dust Bowl. So they are very grit and they are very, very hardened people. You have to wade in shallow waters around here to make sure that you're not pissing too many people off at once. You know, so for me, it's more a matter like, let's just sort of be a a place that people could say, hey, you know what? If they're going to do whatever the hell they want to do on their menu and people are enjoying it, well, then let's just do whatever the hell we want to do on our menu and hopefully people will enjoy it also. Let's just kind of inspire this idea that you don't need a huge investor to come in to open up this great big restaurant and you don't need to buy $60 plates to put your food on. You don't need all these things that we think that we need because we're on Instagram all day. You just need to have a good amount of, of passion to just kind of cook what you want to, to, to present to people. And people are going to resonate with that a little bit. So for us, like I'm trying to get people like other cooks in the city to just start thinking about what they think the city should look like. And then maybe we can all kind of trumpet it out to the rest of the country. You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, I think, you know, we had our first restaurant recognized as a James Beard winner, you know, a gray sweater last year. And, and of course, you know, Madeira was also a finalist and there was two people in Oklahoma City for that kind of like Southwest region. And I think that was probably a big shock to a lot of people around the country. But I don't think that it's like that surprising. I think that if you look at Oklahoma City's population, if you look at its location, if you look at everything about it, it's the largest city that hasn't really blown up with the food scene yet. Or it's like the largest city that people wouldn't automatically say, oh, yeah, they got great food there. And, And I think that it's just a matter of time before that happens. And, you know, a lot of the impetus for us to move back here was to kind of 
maybe kind of steer it in that direction, maybe help push it in that direction. I mean, I'm at a point where I've kind of already, this is kind of my second runaround, my second time doing this. So my ambition and my goals are, are, are much different now than they were when I opened up Salt's Cure in Los Angeles. But I'm still competitive and I'm still hungry, but I don't necessarily need a lot of the, the recognition that we're getting. I'm very comfortable and very confident that we can just open a good business and have great service and we're going to be successful whether or not we get national attention or not. And I, and I think to, to, to really hone in on a food city, that's what food cities have. You know, not everything in Chicago is nationally known, but it's a great fucking food city. You know, not everything in New Orleans is nationally known. But again, it's the same thing. Great food city. And, and, and you can go to these places and it's just genuine hospitality and genuine care for that the hospitality industry in general. You know, these are, you know, we want Oklahoma City to be a city that protects its hospitality industry, not just looking out for like big corporate interests and stuff like that. And so that, that's more of where I would like to see us being able to say, hey, we're we are actually trying to be a real food city here. I would call them, I guess, maybe secondary cities. So like Oklahoma City, Columbus, where I'm at is probably falls in this category. Big population, kind of landlocked not a household name of a city you know when you if you have to list off you know the five places in the u.s that anybody overseas would know they're not going to make it to one of these but do you think that that's those locations are kind of the future of the culinary industry like you're always going to have you know your new york and your la they're always going to have restaurants opening and closing but due to kind of lower costs lower rent costs appetite for something new population shifts is that kind of where the next wave of the culinary industry is and where you'll probably see more out there concepts pop up? They have time to breathe to as well. Like if you open a restaurant in New York, if your concept's not dialed in, you're done within a year. And you might even be done within a year, even if your concept is dialed in, <laughs> just because of how many other restaurants there are for people to choose from. When you get into a smaller city or, you know, a city where cost of living isn't outrageous yet, it does give people a little bit more chance, a little bit more time. Is that kind of the future of restaurants in the culinary industry is to to push the boundaries in those locations versus your LA and your New York? I think that you can see it kind of what happened at the turn of the century. You know, people left Manhattan and they went to the boroughs and let's skip up 20 years, people left Los Angeles and now they're all in Phoenix. People have left New York, they're all in DC now. Like, I think that hungry entrepreneurs are going to constantly be looking for markets that are affordable. Because again, the other crisis that we're in that is just as big as pulling fish out of the ocean is that everything is just too damn expensive. And we're constantly being priced out of absolutely everything. And it starts with real estate. And as long as big cities continue to raise their real estate costs, I do think that creative entrepreneurs are going to continue to leave those cities and go somewhere else. What's next for you professionally? What do you got uh, coming up on the horizon outside from just running Sedalia? We're flirting around with looking for what our next move is going to be. Since we've gotten some national attention here, there's a lot of people start coming out of the woodwork to ask you to do projects with them and things like that. But I think that we're, Silvana and I, we really want to keep it as simple as possible. So whatever our next move is, 
I can tell you it's going to be very much still just the two of us. And it's going to be something that we can control as much as we've been able to control what Sedalis is. Uh, you know, we're not in any hurry to just like all of a sudden have a restaurant group and start popping up restaurants all over. That's not why we are doing what we're doing. So for us, we're just kind of like, you know, we had a great beginning uh, a year and a half. You know, business has doubled every single quarter. Since we've been open, if this was a child, we'd still be taking it to mandatory checkups to the doctor every every couple of months. So, you know, we're still on a hands-on stage here and we need to make sure that we protect what we have now because, you know, just like any restaurant, this shit can go away in, in the snap of a finger. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, sommelier Peter Andrews, who's the owner and founder of Culture Wine Co. Uh, based out of San Francisco. He left behind for you. How are ways that you can be a mentor to your community more? For us, I think it's just giving back to the community, showing appreciation uh, for uh, everything the community can can give us, but then also figuring out a way to open our doors to um, you know maybe get them to understand what we think our ethos is here and what we think um, can be a good uh, synergy building uh, for moving forward. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? With today's current wage increases, how much longer do we see the tipping system actually living? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's the one thing you wish you could add to the restaurant if you could have a do-over? So like go back to when you're building out the restaurant, there's one thing you would have incorporated. A walk-in. So we got uh, a few more questions for you. We asked these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for the listener. First one, who would you say is the biggest influence on your career looking back on it? I honestly would have to say that probably my time at, at, at the Hungry Cat in Los Angeles was definitely, you know, being in and around Dave and Suzanne. Those were guys that highly influenced me through, from my career. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? A towel. Does that work? Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. Person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled. You guys aren't open. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. We got a few here now. I think that if you're wanting to do the fine dining thing and see kind of like where that's gone in a city in a market like this, you've got gray sweater and you've got none such for sure. I think that it's really up to you which journey you want to take there. I think none such is taking more chances and being a little bit more experimental, whereas Gray Sweaters uh, plays a little bit closer to the chest, but um, and a little bit more traditional. But then we also have, you know, Madeira Lao here in the city, which was also a James Beard restaurant here, uh, is doing wonderful, wonderful things. Uh, and that restaurant can't be more vibrant and more on the nose of what the kind of inner city looks like here. But then we've got, you know, our we have a small little space over in the farmer's market district called the powerhouse that has by far and away the best uh, pork chili verde. So if you're only here for a few minutes and you need to have something really spicy and really good, you go to this hole in the wall that's that you would probably not want to eat at when you first see it, but it will have a very, very good, uh, you'll, you'll be happy that you did. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you have not visited yet. You still want to make it to and see, and also restaurant you have not dined at yet, but you still want to get to one day. 
I'm simple, man. I've, you know, I've not done a lot of traveling in general. So, I mean, right now, my travel destination, I think if we were like, hey, we're going uh, tomorrow, I think we'd both probably, you know, Savannah and myself would probably both say uh, Spain is kind of where we want to go and just travel all over. I think that uh, Itchabare up in the Basque region uh, is probably that restaurant that I would like to go to most, especially in Spain. I just, the, you know, that style, just how, Everything about that space just seems it just seems to really resonate with me in general. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? The amount of times that I've seen sex in a bathroom uh, is I can't count those on my hands. Opening uh, a restaurant, you know, off of uh, basically a block away from uh, the ocean in Santa Monica, and when you unlock the bathrooms and there's still a drunk person sleeping in the bathrooms, that's definitely something. I've seen a homeless person spit on a baby. That was very shocking. You know, the list could go on. So uh, lots, lots and lots, lots and lots over the last 25 years. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, something that's pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Ice cream. I, 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 if I open a carton of ice cream, it's going to get finished. Any ice cream or does it have to be a specific brand? No, any fucking ice. It doesn't matter. Any ice cream doesn't have to. I, I, I could say some are better than others, but it really doesn't matter. If it's frozen and creamy, I'll take it all down. What is one cookbook you think everyone should read, whether they're just a at-home chef or an aspiring professional chef, something that uh, they all should pick up and flip through? My favorite, I think, has always been Bar Tartine, Techniques and Recipes. Um, I absolutely love that book. I think that it is well-made, well-written, uh, just absolutely wonderful. Um, and that would, that would be my pick. Favorite dish thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of looking back over your career up to this point, you can kind of point to this as almost like your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a professional chef one day once you kind of made this and put this together. Um, I made an abalone dish, uh, where I just, uh, pounded the abalone out and then quickly grilled it and then, uh, julienned it, tossed it with some preserved lemon and then put it on top of a, uh, really well-made, uh, onion puree. And, uh, just the flavors hit. I made a sauce out of the entrails of the, uh, of the, of the, of, you know, the, basically the entrails of abalone are all algae and, and, and that. So, you know, you squeeze all the entrails out and you mix it with soy sauce and a little bit of, uh, you know, ginger and shallot and things like that. Just kind of poured that on top of it and all just the way that it came together and the way that it was kind of all of a new and things like that, that, that was a, that was a big boost for, for me. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that still stands out to you? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was also on TV, like a culinary personality, uh, Julia Child, uh, Emeril, whoever that you just kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? Yeah, I mean, I love Bourdain. Grew up with him, kind of. You know, I think Bourdain really got popular right as I was moving down to LA or in and around. So, reading all of his books and watching all of his shows. I've, I've recently started rewatching um, his shows, and it's kind of, it's. I guess it's a little bit more tragic now because, of, unfortunately, the you know there's all. I don't know. He gives a lot of innuendos of how it's going to end up, and that kind of sucks to a degree, but. I don't know. I, I think that Bourdain for me is very influential because he's like a lot of cooks, you know, they're just trying to look for a release for their creativity and find a, some sort of 
path. Sometimes you accidentally become famous when you do that. Not everybody's meant to be famous, you know, whether or not they're charismatic or not. And I think that, you know, that was a, it kind of showed uh, through throughout history. I think the way that I, I see them now is not necessarily tragic by any means, but bittersweet. And it'd be great to still have them around, but, you know, it, you, you can kind of see where, where it was coming from. It's like one of the last four or five episodes he did it's i forget which one it is but they're in a kind of tropical destination and it's really eerie when he's at like this table and he's talking about like how it ends it's really freaky because it's kind of it's not too far off from kind of the the way it happened kind of thing so it's just when you see that you're like oh yeah this this is pretty weird it's just it's just weird yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, again, when you reread Hemingway, you're kind of like, oh, of course he blew his head off with, with a shotgun. This makes absolute sense. I mean, there's always been that uh, with, you know, with a lot of people's heroes and stuff like that. But, you know, Bourdain was just kind of, you know, it's one of those sad things where he was probably getting pushed a lot harder than he wanted to get pushed. You know, you just, there's only so far people can go. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Um, we are Sedalia's, uh, Sedalia's, however, I don't know. There's a, there's a town in Missouri called Sedalia and it was known for whoring back in its time. Uh, and you can look that up on Wikipedia. It's the weirdest shit to write about a city. Sedalia is how I pronounce it. SedaliaOKC.com is our website. At Sedalia's OKC is our Instagram. I am at ZLW7. My Instagram is shit, uh, but I will post stuff from time to time. That's where we are. That's where you can find us. Yeah, you guys are open, I think, uh, Wednesday through Sunday, 5 to 10, and then Sunday's 5 to 8. Yeah, 5 to 8, 5 to 9. I mean, it really depends. This is a sleepy town, so it's normally the cutoff no this was awesome uh again really appreciate you coming on i wish that we would get here in columbus a dedicated seafood restaurant we don't have that we have like an oyster bar but they're not the other aspect of their business is bringing in fish for restaurants they don't have a fish you know a seafood restaurant themselves so yeah i'm hoping somebody eventually decides to do it here i love seafood i grew up with it so whenever I can find a place that does it great and it's on the menu, um, I'm always down for it. So yeah, I don't know when, uh, I'll be back in Oklahoma city, but yeah, there's some great restaurants there that we've been kind of watching from afar. So I'm definitely looking forward to somehow snaking my way back through there, whether it's uh wind up in Dallas and drive up or whatever. Uh, I've done that drive before, so it's not too bad. Definitely looking forward to, to trying everything out, stopping in. But if you need anything from us, let us know. Feel free to reach out. Um, always an open invitation for people to come back on the podcast. They got something new to promote or whatever. Um, we always try and support everybody as much as we can. Uh, resharing Instagram events and stuff that they have going on and, and whatnot too as well. Make sure to stay in touch. I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate you uh, you know, bringing me on and doing this. This was great. Big thanks again to Zach for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his off day to jump on and talk about his career and working in California, winding up back in Oklahoma City, opening Sedalia's, all the ethos and origin that goes into it and the vision and kind of future plans and all that stuff too as well. So it was a really fun conversation. Super happy to have someone on that's in this part of the country that so often gets overlooked, rarely gets mentioned 
I feel like uh, a lot of places that we feature, you know, Cincinnati, I feel is like that, even though they have a great food scene and Columbus isn't at the top of anybody's minds either. Usually we have some great restaurants here. We've had a lot of those folks on this podcast too, in previous episodes, um, they're making kind of a push for some James Beard recognition and stuff too, that they kind of had a body get together, do some marketing and stuff too, as well. So that was awesome to see this year. Um, finally kind of everybody get on the same page and kind of push forward. We've had a handful of people on from Las Vegas and, and other places too as well. So Oklahoma City is kind of one of those places, as we talked about on the episode, it's not a place that you would think you would find great food, but they, as we've mentioned previously, there are these places that no matter where you go, small town, whatever, you can usually find one or two great places to eat. That's just kind of what's cool about the restaurant industry. You know, I've had Machete on from Greensboro. Like Greensboro is not known for being a food destination, but here's this restaurant that's doing these really innovative and unique dishes in Greensboro, which is, you would think that place would be in Charlotte or that place would be in Raleigh, but they're in Greensboro and, and stuff like that. So you can find great places all over the place. So it's always awesome when we get a chance to feature somebody who's maybe doesn't get covered as much as they should, even with kind of some of the accolades of Bon Appetit or Esquire magazine and, and stuff like that, as those are kind of short-lived, you know, you get a bump and everything and then it kind of fades away. So the podcast kind of just stays up forever and people can discover it as new things happen, new awards happen for these places too, as well. These people involve come up in Google searches, you know, the episode will come up, people can click on it, find it, listen to it, you know, kind of discover the background. And that's kind of part of the goal. Too as well, not just featuring places that you know we want to see be successful and places that we love and people that we think are super talented or doing something super unique, but also you know two, three, four years down the road, you know people stumble across this thing and they're like, wait, what is this? And then they do a Google search and then all of a sudden you know this episode pops up and they listen to it and like, oh, this explains so much and like makes me want to go there even though you know that episode was a couple years old. So that's kind of we always we always you know, try and feature, you know, the episode and kind of any Instagram posts or something that we do from a restaurant or wine professional or whatever. But again, follow Sedalia's on Instagram. It's at Sedalia's OKC. You can follow Zach too as well at ZLW7. Uh, follow us at Spoonwild. Check out both websites, SedaliasOKC.com, also Spoonwild.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the two big ones. We're on both. We're on Amazon, Audible, Google, all the other small stuff. Podcast Republic, Pocket Cast, Samsung. Like You can find us on anything. iHeartRadio. Find us there too as well. So make sure you follow, subscribe, whatever platform that you use. Uh, helps us out with kind of the download numbers and everything. Listens per episode. Usually kind of the first week is kind of weird. It takes a few days for that stuff to come in, but you know, mainly we look at kind of the first month of an episode being out and that's kind of what we're shooting for because we do long form. So some episodes are an hour, some episodes can be two hours. Uh, and it's not like somebody can just get through that entire thing in one sitting sometimes. Sometimes it takes them a couple trips to the office or whatever. So completely understandable, but appreciate everybody who's been listening, you know, super happy to get to 150. Uh, that was a goal that we had. So thank you to everybody who's been listening along the way. If you're new and this was your first episode, welcome. Uh, please check out the back catalog. We've got a lot of great episodes in there. 
So please kind of make your way through that when you get some time too. We'd love to have you stick around. Feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback, spoonmob.yahoo.com or the contact portal on the website. But yeah, continue to help spread the word as you guys have done. Continue to write in, continue to leave comments on Instagram posts, continue to leave reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. You know, you click on the podcast, click the little stars, you can write in questions, comments, all that stuff kind of at the bottom too as well. Right now, I think most of our comments are like, like there's one that's a really nice comment, but it doesn't involve our podcast whatsoever. And I can't get Apple to like take it down. It's like, this isn't related to us. This is for some other podcast. So they won't do anything about it, but whatever. So, um, yeah, make sure to you guys get a chance, leave us a review. Yeah. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. You go to these institutions, these restaurants, these businesses, these wine shops, make sure you let them know that you heard the episode that they did on the spoon mob podcast. Um, it always kind of brings a smile to their face knowing that they did this media thing and it was worth it and it's reaching the people that they want to reach and it opens more doors uh, for them and doing future interviews and stuff like that too and growing and coming back on the podcast and for us you know being able to get additional guests and stuff too as well so but that is it for this week we got one more new it's not even a new quote it's a new episode but a returning guest it'll be our second three-time guest uh, Matt Higgins was our first three-time guest, and we got uh, a couple two-time guests, and we're going to have another three-peat here. So that'll be next week. We'll do a mailbag after that. That episode will drop, and then uh, we'll take a few weeks off, take a breather, a refresher, do some stuff in the background, some website updating, some podcast updating tools and all that stuff, to, um, do some marketing or, or whatever, too. And then we'll do some recording and start releasing episodes again. Plan is to probably do just about like 25 episodes next year. So get to about 175 by year's end. Just kind of do every other week uh, as we kind of do some other stuff and have some other obligations that we're focused on. But yeah, it's been a great year. Thank you to all the guests who've come on, taking their time out of their days off. You know, their Mondays and Tuesdays, you know, when they're not normally doing anything for the restaurant, that's their day off and they're doing PR and coming on a podcast that they've never heard of and had to do some research to make sure it wasn't going to be a giant waste of their time. And they come on and then they, you know, have a great conversation and kind of hopefully sets the standard for them having conversations down the road, doing interviews and whatnot. We've had a bunch of first time podcast people that, you know, this was their first time ever being invited or recording a podcast this year. So that was pretty awesome to see too. Um, and here, you know, when people are like, I've never done this before, like, what do I need to do? And super straightforward, but you know, you kind of walk them through it and, uh, they have an amazing time and, and that's kind of what it's all about. So really appreciate everybody. Super happy with the year that we've had for 2023. And we will talk to you guys next year in 2024.